six meters tall and the combined mass of the whole reactor, everything included is 23,000 tons. Yeah. Do you know anything that's 23,000 tons? We're back for episode two. How are you doing on this fine evening? Oh, very, very good. Beautiful sunny day. There actually is a bit of a heat wave in New South Wales, so it's pretty crazy at the moment. Mate, I went for a swim earlier, right? Very, very hot outside, and I'm like, perfect weather to go into the pool. Yeah. And because it was so windy, as soon as I got into the pool, ice cold. Really? Like, just devastatingly ice cold. So I just could not get the best out of my swim today. Oh, sorry to hear that, man. That's so, uh, this is the biggest massive shame. Yeah, biggest first world problem with first world problem living in sure. Australia. But it <laughs> just wasn't fun. But yeah. Um, look, last week we uh, or the previous fortnight, previous podcast, mm. we did the episode on the predictions, talking about this a lot, right? And mm-hmm. one thing you brought up was nuclear fusion. And I got a message from you during the week, and you were like, "I want to talk about this more." Yeah, I got as I mo like research into that prediction of where we're standing, what we're doing, I kind of got more and more excited about it. Um, it feels like fusion energy is kind of butting up to what is like commercially available, not commercially, but it is more mainstream in the scientific field. Um, it has been around for a while, but it feels like the advancements are really starting to push recently. Yeah. Um, and the more researching into it, looking at what's in the pipeline for projects, it's pretty interesting. So I was like, I think we should come back to it immediately. It's <laughs> an immediate double beat. I'm interested to know, like with with your interest in the past week and what you've looked at, in in the way that we are in the space race, are we similarly in the star builders race at the same time in a similar sense? I, I mm, see like star builder being the idea that fusion is a recreation of the sun in creating stars. In and, some respects, yeah. harnessing the sun. Um Yes. In the race to build the first commercially viable nuclear fusion reactor. I mean, I don't physically believe... No, I don't believe so. Because most of the fusion research is made of conglomerates of corporations and countries. Yeah. With the one that's being built, the IDA. The IDA, yeah. That was signed up with the USSR. That's how old this project is. Yeah. So it is a very... It is very much a collaboration. Because this is a technology that, if once it's fully operational, will be used for exploring the stars. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's part of the space race. It's kind of like a Venn diagram. I wouldn't say we're in a race with anyone because we're building it together. And universities around the world are being giving Tokamak devices, these yeah. mini ones. Uh, we actually have uh, some quotes from one of the um, the project managers at the UNSW, Dr. Patrick Burr, that we'll quote a bit later. Yeah. So, it's I don't believe is a race into it. It's a technology that will be shared. And yeah, okay. It, it's open technology now, so it's going to be really interesting to well be in 20, 30 years. So, yeah. Mm. So maybe we're not in a race, but some healthy competition, hopefully. I feel like healthy competition always drives innovation, the idea of being in a little bit of a battle. You know when you, uh, a fast car comes up next to your Tesla at the red lights and starts revving the car? I'm sure your foot's a bit heavier uh, on, on the green. It gets boring after a while, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, much. so let's take a step back and just talk about the general approach to the technology now i personally feel like when nuclear gets brought up um it rings alarm bells there's always a bit of scrutiny around nuclear stigma about it um you know you can use it to make bombs there's radioactive waste there are these big things you see in hollywood you hear of things like chernobyl fukushima and it's kind of like 
a bit scary, right? But terrifying, yeah. That's because with most nuclear fusion reactors, you get a lot of that gamma ray expulsion. You get a lot of radioactive waste, which you know can cause long-term health issues and lots of other bad things. But when we talk about a nuclear reaction, in simple terms, an atom is a proton, neutron, and electron quite basic we are are talking about changing the structure of that atom in terms of the number of protons and or neutrons Mm. so while nuclear fission the dangerous one does have that aspect nuclear fusion has slight bits of radiation but nothing on the grand scale of nuclear fission i mean yes and no i i would agree in certain points that nuclear as a topic is stigmatized to an nth degree yeah um we say some people think it's a heralding of clean energy. In that regard, I think they're wrong. Um, but the technology itself is quite safe. The problem yeah. with it is the origin of its birth, right? So um, fission reactions was the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan. The first two, the fat, uh, the, the little boy and the... Oh, I've got actually the terms. Fat man and little boy were the two yeah. that were dropped. Yeah. One being plutonium, one being uranium. The splitting of heavy nuclear atoms. The following, we actually did have uh, a fission reaction shortly after with the A-bomb, which was 10 times more dangerous than the bombs that were dropped on Japan. Yeah. And so we've had nuclear fission and fusion around for a very long time, and that stigma is being born out of nuclear waste, um, or well, the idea of creating a wasteland out of nuclear bombs, is terrifying. But then following that, there was so much technology around that. The medical advancements that came through, chemotherapies, radioactive um, uh, medicine, the yep. x-rays, a huge... Uh, they, they broke a lot of barriers and they've saved millions of lives, arguably more than that was taken. So the idea of like nuclear has this kind of bad shadow, this bad smell about it because both fission and fusion have a bad start to its history. Yeah. But since then, they've been very, very different. Yeah, I mean, you say nuclear fission isn't a feat of clean energy. What, well, I don't necessarily agree with that. What do you mean by it's not... Oh, sorry, I, I, I mean that I believe it is clean energy. Yeah. It is my reason against nuclear as an option for clean energy now is it's too expensive. It doesn't make sense in terms of uh, an option to consider. Even fusion that we're currently looking at... Oh, super would, expensive, yeah. I mean, there isn't a single plant that is commercially viable yet they think the first yep. megawatt might be plugged in from 2030 to 35 that's dr patrick burr um that even when that'll come in will come in at thousand times the price of what energy we can produce now with cheap green energy yeah with wind solar batteries and hydro initially so comparing both capital costs of fission and fusion it's not fair yeah yeah but like why would you would you say firstly there's more of an appetite to look into fusion from a cost point of view in the long run like i guess my question is do we have ways do you think to reduce the cost of that in future more so than fission so like is fission at a plateau where we can't reduce the cost anymore even with smrs which stand for small modular reactors which yeah i think you know quite a, a bit about yeah small modular reactors are this weird pariah of nuclear it's most nuclear reactors have to be built at a minimum size of 500 megawatts, which is huge. A standard coal unit is 600 megawatts. So you've got to build effectively coal units all the time. SMRs or small modular reactors come in at can be 3 megawatts, 50, 100. They don't know. They haven't built one. But they keep saying yeah. it's going to be the thing that we will build because you can build them smaller and closer to where you need them to be. They've never been commercially proven. And they're old technology. It's conventional fission reactions it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, 
we've got things that are cheaper that are ready to go. Yeah. And so I, on your point on the cost of fusion coming down, I think there could be. So the, one of the big issues with fission reactions and fission nuclear reactors like the ones in the US and Japan and Europe is you have to enrich uranium or plutonium or whatever your feedstock is. You then create a fission reaction you then have waste that lasts 200 years. The cost to make and then store the waste is huge. Yeah. Fusion, oh, sorry. Yeah, fusion you just doesn't have that You just issue. need to divert the yeah. small amount of waste. All right, so you, you need um, uh, hydrogen with extra neutron into it. Okay, yeah, it's uh, not cheap to make, but that is still cheaper than to creating dispose of. uranium-235. Yeah. So there's a lot of benefits to fusion over fission. So... I guess maybe let's go over to it. Sure. Why haven't we had fusion before? Why do we focus on fission? I mean, fission is a very mature technology, right? Mm. It's been around since the 1950s. We know a lot more about it. So in some respects, there's more reason to go about it. But when you talk about the advantages of fusion, um, the fuel source is abundant, right? So let's talk about the fuel source. We'll talk about it more later, how it's utilized. But the fuel source is what's known as deuterium and tritium. So if you're listening, you're like, what is that? It's just hydrogen yeah, with one extra neutron or two extra neutrons. It's Look, uh, you might get confused with some of these names. Dihydrogen monoxide is what? Water. Exactly. Yeah. It, the names are just names. Imagine hydrogen with it's a bit heavier than a hydrogen that's a bit heavier again. That's yeah. probably the easier way to explain it to, a, to me if I didn't know nuclear science. That's right, yeah. So to, to touch on that, it's basically what they call an isotope. So... Mm. That's all it is. It's just it's hydrogen, but different hydrogen to make that sound yeah. simpler. I'm curious, than... how do they make this though? Okay, sure, we can we can go into that just quickly. Give me an elevator pitch. All right. So, what's Patty's favorite process? Electrolysis. Electrolysis. So they use electrolysis to get the hydrogen out of water. They then frack the hydrogen they get from gas to get deuterium and tritium. Um, right. Okay. That's the quickest way I can okay. explain. To Perfect. Too easy. Um, so yeah. you pump it with electricity. You then frack it with hydrocarbons uh well you can do fractional distillation specific types of fractional distillation with okay. hydrogen yeah let's gas. let's not yeah. open that can of worms okay that's a so, big topic on it so you use electricity yeah. into water and then bang In the ocean water can be like like what well, there's other sources you can get mm. deuterium and tritium from actually i think it is looking into ways to get um tritium tritium more yeah um pure which we can go into later but yeah the first benefit is i mean uranium is uh, still a few source it uh, there's like 500 years worth of supply or whatever you want to call it. Um, mm. So some would consider it renewable. Whereas fusion, I'd say, is more renewable than... You can harness it from the stars. Whereas if you land on a planet without uranium and all you have is fu- a fission reactions, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> like, I mean, hydrogen is the first element that was ever yeah, made it, in our it's universe. It's one of the most stable elements. If you have a reactor that could create deuterium and... No, deuterium and tritium then you can create the fuel for your reactors. Isn't that interesting how we're literally going back to first principles to produce energy, like first principles of the universe? Hey, if it works, don't don't screw with it. You know? I'm not screwing with it. I'm just yeah. saying, I just Well, like, okay, sorry. We are going back, but that's because the fuel source is hydrogen. But the process to get fusion to work is very much away from first principles. Oh, so, shit, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you kind of mentioned IDA and what they're doing. Should we kind of explain what ITER is? Because that's, I mean, the mega project that's the herald for yeah. fusion. Let's tease our audience a bit and say not yet. ITER is the most exciting bit of the podcast. Yep. And let's still talk, go through the benefits of fusion over fission. Yeah. Okay. I mean, 
I mean, there's a lot of benefits to it. There's, there's, no... there's, four, there's four main benefits that I've got. So uh, low cost fuel supply. Low cost fuel supply. So not as much, you know, to operational cost in, you know, storing plutonium and waste and all that sort of stuff and getting uranium. Yeah, so no, Safety. Yeah. It's a lot more safer than fission. Not Ooh. yet, but <laughs> I would argue on that. You have to have take some merit in this because fission is very like hard to control. So is so is fusion, but control in the sense of if fission spins out of control, you're fucked. Like a nuclear fission reactor meltdown is terrifying. I agree, but you also got in fusion the power of the sun in a very small space. You do, but assuming your vacuum. Um, is built and designed correctly and your chamber is built and designed correctly and certified. I mean, but that's... Generally I, speaking, the laws of generally physics Generally speaking, no, I see, actually about. see, I disagree because I went to the reactor at Ansto, their nuclear yep. reactor. They have a very small scale reactor in, in Australia. It's the only one that they have. Yep. It has so many contingencies to avoid reactor meltdown. One of the things they have is the rods themselves are surrounded by these um, these lead cores, so they stop the re the reaction from forming, and you have to like manually shove it up. Yeah. And so if everything goes wrong, a plane hits the thing. Actually, it's weird. the The entire facility is designed to withstand a plane attack. Yep. It can bounce a set of Boeing off its rooftop. Um, but if, for example, you lose power, you lose hydraulic pressure, lights turn out, the top two floors break the reactor automatically shuts down and pulls the rods out. Yeah. You have to do three or four checks to put the reactor into play. So if any of those fail, the, the rods fall back into a lead cartridge. They, it is so hard for fission reactions to fail today because of the stigma that some of the um, like Chernobyl and all these events have yeah. caused. So those fission reactions, it makes sense to have those contingencies because fission is a chain reaction, yeah? Yeah. Fusion is not. So... In, to a chemist, a chain reaction is terrifying. Yes. The thing with yes. fusion is, I'm going to make this sound very simple. You can turn it off and on. Mm. It isn't that simple, but when you're comparing it to fission, that's the uh, approach I take. So I think it's safer than fission, but mm. it still has safety considerations. I'm not putting it... Yeah. I'm not sugarcoating it by saying it's a safe technology. We don't know enough. Yeah. I don't know enough to call it a safe. For me, what you've got is 150 million degrees of plasma held together by a magnetic core yeah. that's powered by electricity. One's if you lose electricity. Yeah, I mean... You lose, <laughs> I mean, you lose you've got your literally yeah. the power of a sun pumping out of this little tiny device. Yeah. I mean, you just want your vacuum to be good, right? You want to make sure the, the heat can't bounce onto the walls and break through the blanket that's holding yeah. everything together. That's, that's what would terrify yeah. me. But assuming your magnetic field is good, your vacuum's good. And look... I don't know enough about the technology yet of what they're gonna, how they're going to go with that to perfect mm. that. But anyway, the other thing, yeah, I don't. It's a, I like this topic because it, it's it great. Is a lot it of, sparks a lot of. Yeah, there's a lot of I don't knows and then what ifs and like speculations. And I love yeah. speculating on stuff like this because you know I, I'm not when neither of us are experts in the nuclear field, but mm. we sort of know enough of the physics to talk about why we think things we can a certain way. provide some we, commentary, but yeah, we can be completely wrong in the speculative terms, but we can also be on the right track. But I want to go into probably something we can agree on more in the benefits in is you don't, you have very low radioactive waste compared yes, to, we've already touched on fair, that. Yep. And the fourth one being is with the greenhouse emissions point of view nuclear fusion is one of the lowest greenhouse emitting um, yep. things i think it's on par with offshore wind of like 12 grams of co2 it's, per it'll be almost kilowatt hour yeah. or something but with fusion it's literally zero like 
I think pretty sure it's it, it's a no carbon footprint um, technology. Yeah, Potem- I mean potentially the cost to build the reactor. Sure, there yeah. might be something in there, but when they generally talk about the life cycle of a nuclear fusion reactor, nothing. It's just yeah. a zero. And look, I think it's sort of hypocritical if I say that's not a good thing because at the end of the day, we're trying to make things as carbon zero as possible, yeah, exactly. so to speak. Um, but anyway, that's um, the benefits. The huge benefits to it. Let's go into ITER. Firstly, you're yeah. the etymology base. What does what does ITER mean in, in Latin? I mean, so they've, they've talked about this a few times. Every single research article you read on ITOs, um, it's Latin for this This is the way. Yeah. Or it's the way, the way, the way going yeah. forward, like very Mandalorian. Um, I but, have spoken. <laughs> yeah, I have spoken. This is the way. Um, I, I feel like that would be really weird to have like 55 scientists, all different years and degrees, just being like, this is the way. Then <laughs> all in course, this is the way. Yeah. <laughs> that seems kind of weird. Or rock up with like their Mandalorian yeah. mask, like the IDAR group. It's just like a secret cult. Like, yeah, Mandalore. yeah. I mean, it's kind of unfair. This is the way or ITA uh, in... It's its name started in 2013. The Mandalorian oh, released in 2018, but they've definitely overtaken that that motto. Um, but it's it is yeah. So they're they're kind of pioneering to the future. I kind of mentioned before, Ida is a collaboration of a lot of different companies and countries. It's built being built in France, I believe, um, which is kind of funny because a lot of the uh, uh, one of the things that they said was it is in terms of metallic structure heavier than all the metal struts of the Eiffel Tower. The actual metal components of the Eiffel Tower, it weighs more than that, yep. and it is six meters tall. Um, but no, it, it is incredible what this is. So for those who un- don't understand, we kind of mentioned last on the on the previous podcast, um, that it's a tokamak device. So effectively, imagine a donut and it's hollow on the inside where the, the, the filling would be. So it's like this coil, like imagine a tube that comes back in itself. And this uh, device has a super, super strong, super conductive magnetic field. And so they have this really hot plasma, which effectively is what the sun is made out of. It's 99% of the sun is plasma. So super high temperature, um, and I'm assuming super high pressure as well. Yep, has um, to be. Has to be at that. Uh, that, that's a standard they go hand in hand pressure and temperature at that level um so this plasma is like a coil or like a, a ring through being held together by this magnetic um like vice grip on it so it yeah. keeps it contained exactly so it doesn't hit the outside walls yeah. of the reactor because at that point is when you can like, get really hot temperatures on the actual reactor itself which you don't want you want to yeah. keep it contained in yeah and i think probably one thing that we need to clarify is like Fusion reaction is what the sun is doing on a constant basis. Yep. So it is purely fission. Like it's a known quantity and we're just recreating it at a small scale. It's really hard and very expensive to do. But the fact that we're doing it, oh, it makes me so happy as a science, like in the yeah. science field. I'm like, oh. What happens when the sun runs out of our hydrogen? We just build another one. Just <laughs> build a really big tokamak in the sky. Yeah. Actually, one of the measurements uh, of... The real answer is we either get a black hole or a neutron star or a white dwarf. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we're off the planet at that point. But yeah. we can make a new one, just shove it in. Um, uh, just to clarify, something that I thought was really fun uh, was the measurement of the civilizations, how well you can gather energy but the so, measurement of what the uh, how much energy you can produce and capture 
No, what was the word you used? The measure of the... Civilization. Civiliza- oh, okay, civilization yep. is measure of how much. So if you have like... If your civilization is making fires, you, you do a little bit of energy. If you've got nuclear power, it's a bit more... If you can harness the sun of your entire galaxy or your, your solar system, that is stage one. Oh, so this is like the type stage type one, type two civilization. I forgot the, the yeah. name of it, but there's a measurement scale of how well you are. So if you can build a Dyson sphere, which is effectively what we're trying to do at a small scale for the tokamak, um, that would be where we're, we would be like what a stage one civilization. If we could cover the sun in metal yep. and then um, harness the power from that, that's stage one. Yeah, cover, so the, we're cover the sun away. Yeah, and we're generate lights to light the world up. That'd be pretty cool. I mean, yeah, just have it so only a little bit of light that focuses on Earth is open. So for us, it doesn't change. But for everything else in the, in the galaxy, in the solar system, it goes cold. And that energy was being used to produce energy to send spacecraft across the the galaxy yeah that's yeah so when you hear stage one i think it's just the first step in becoming multi-planetary and then you actually mm. go beyond you can actually extend that to living on mars and then eventually going outside of your solar system and then the galaxy and eventually you conquer the universe right if you become the the highest stage <laughs> And I mean, I'm, I'm really am pushing space a lot in this podcast recently because I'm getting quite excited for it. Um, Bezos, uh, Jeff Bezos, he recently said, uh, not recently, but he said in a, in a um, uh, I don't know where he said it, but uh, the commentary was... My mate Steve told yeah, me. Yeah, my mate Steve told me. He say that there's enough metal in our asteroid belt, in our solar system to build a uh, cover the entire Earth, including water, with 70-story skyscrapers. Just. That's how much metal there is, right? And Neil deGrasse Tyson goes on and says, like, well, a lot of conflicts in today's society is based on rare resources like oil, fuel, diamonds, uh, gold. Um, these are all things that are abundant once we breach the atmosphere. There is no need for conflict because you can find, like, different types of oils and gases and fuels and diamonds the size of buildings in outer space. That is there. So the moment we breach that, we then breach a level of gathering resources that we couldn't ga- like garner here, and then humanity just accelerates through. It's just a little breach point that we're trying to get through. I mean, you open a whole new realm of mining engineering, right? Because mm. you know, like, you're mining in the stars. asteroid mining would be a huge thing or industry. Oh, I can imagine like Amazon mining, like like <sighs> a like just a spaceship that goes and harvests like food and water. I think that's the way of the future. Is big tech and big corp owning yeah. parts of the of the solar system oh, if mean, we ever become multi-planetary oh, the number of like video games and books and stories of corporations owning the stars is so abundant that it feels like it's just expected to happen like yeah. even the iss is being pulled apart and a commercial option a private commercial option is replacing it did you know that I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, surprised. when Obama was president, he was the one who endorsed SpaceX. Like, let's push more commercial flights to be privatized. It's making sense as yeah. people who care about this sort of stuff. And they're doing it cheaper than what if you went through a bureaucratic pathway. So yeah. it makes sense, but it's also a little like annoying to have to do a subscription to do space flight. Yeah. You know, that's what's going to be. <laughs> Actually, this 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 is a good segue. So uh, I did think of this before the the recording. Is SpaceX a vision, right? Or Elon Musk has a vision to get to Mars, Mm -hmm. okay? He isn't a space entrepreneur, even though he is. His goal is to get to Mars, but to get to Mars, you have to be a space entrepreneur. There's no... So in a similar sense, I think with this whole nuclear fusion stuff, Mm. obviously the one goal is to produce clean energy, but I feel like if the goal is to do 
something ultimate, yeah. then you have to produce nuclear fusion anyway. It's going to force that change like it did with SpaceX. Are you seeing what yeah. I'm alluding to? So like, what is something you think with nuclear fusion could be the ultimate goal? Like reactors on different planets or... I'm thinking having small like smallish reactors that could be commercially built put on spacecraft and then deploy for habitats because with this reactor right you don't need the sun which for certain satellites you only work with if you're within like the range of a certain star like certain stars don't even produce enough light for them to work so you can produce energy pretty much anywhere as long as there's some mass that you can harness yeah and so you could just create life anywhere if you have energy, you can create life. That's effectively the recipe. If you can provide enough energy to something, you can sustain and create life. Yeah, and food counts as energy, right? It is. That's it's calories, like-, like legit. So there is a kilowatts to kilojoules like conversion immediately. And yeah. kilojoules and then kilocalories and all this, they, they are a scientific notation. Well, which, I, I refer yeah. the whole Haber-Bosch thing, right? As soon as we figured out ways to make more fertilizer and make more food, we had a population boom in a mm. similar sense, like energy... Yeah. will have that knock-on effect. But um, I, I wanted to touch on what the goal of fusion right now is from my point of view. And maybe not with how much energy you produce, but the conversion of input to output energy. So you'd be yeah. familiar with the Q value, right? What is the Q value? Well, the Q value is a measurement that we're trying to use, particularly for fusion. Uh, this is a really, really important metric to try and measure how effective these reactors are getting. The reason behind it is the Q value for fusion can be greater than one. Now, yeah. for your car, a Q value is 0.3. Yes, yeah, like super 0.2. Like Less than that, yeah. The, the fuel point. you put in versus the energy you get out is really low. For fusion, we were getting 0.7s, 0.8s, 0.9s. The only thing beating that is like batteries, but that's because it's the same chemical reaction. The fact that we've hit one and now breaching one, we're getting more energy than we're out, than we're yeah. putting in is incredible step in the right direction yeah. so ITAR their goal is to produce a Q value of greater than 10 so I, I believe the exact um, energy is 50 kilowatts in 50 so power, megawatts um, 50 megawatts 50 in megawatts. and then 500 megawatts 500 out. megawatts of power so out. same 50 kilowatts 50 megawatts the, the thing is a 10, oh the ratio, the ratio yes, is yeah, 10 yeah. Um, but, but, but 50 megawatts is huge like that is um, like what how what is a 50 megawatts equivalent to so your car is an electric vehicle, it charges a lot, right? That yeah. charges at 22 kilowatts. Yeah. Max. But realistically, it's 11. Let's say no, 10. I charge, it, I charge it about 7 kilowatts on yeah. a normal day, which is but not much. From a standard home charger, you can do um, 10 megawatts, right? Yeah. So 10 megawatts, that means you got 10 cars per 100 kilowatts. A thousand, no, 100 cars per megawatt. So you got 55,000 cars charging simultaneously is the energy that you're using to power up the device and you're getting a hundred, a 10 times that. Yeah. I just, sorry, be, being a water engineer, I just did a quick like back then of my head. You're talking about powering 100 water treatment plants with that amount. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot. Like the energy going in and coming out is massive. Yeah, so, so, the, so the things that make your water clean, 100 of those places which yeah. are, they're pretty they can be pretty big so that's yeah. the that's actually a good scale so yeah people are going to see this program like it's had like a, a a james moment like going into my head you're like how, how big is this yeah like what is a good representative like 50 like 500 megawatts is is probably a few football stadiums of energy usage thousands yeah i'd say thousands of football stadiums yeah like because all, all of them use like big ass leds now um, yeah yeah i think like it depends it, it, it depends on how much uh, um 
each stadium uses, but it'll be mega. Like that's it's a lot. Yeah. Like New South Wales, all of Australia uses between eight to nine gigawatts. So this would be like one twentieth the power of New South Wales or Australia at any point. It's pretty yeah. big. That's yeah. not huge, but like what I find fascinating is how these things actually work. Like mm. it sounds complex, but I've thought of ways to simplify this. Right, so. Yeah. You get your fuel, you get your little hydrogen cocktail that's not actually hyd- special hydrogen, mm-hmm. let's call it. You put it inside your reactor yeah. and you heat the crap out of it. Yeah. So what do you, what temperature do you heat it to? We're talking about 150 million degrees Celsius, right? And in theory, all up to 300 million degrees. It's fucking, it's 10 times the amount that's yeah. in the core of the sun. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, you need this thing to be so hot. The fact that we can even get something that hot is actually surprising to me. I didn't realize we could get anything to that temperature when we we're talking about the podcast on the podcast last week i had two main questions how do we get it that hot and how do we harness that energy mm. and in a week i've gone away and, le- and this is what we do as engineers we try and learn things as quickly as possible you never know everything to. but you you, you have can to learn, learn it, yeah. yeah um and the analogy that i've drawn is, <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah. is fun. Yeah. this is like when i talked about how combustion in in the falcon 9 is similar to a car but it's completely different because you're, create, <laughs> you're creating thrust in an engine you're not it's not a great metaphor if you it's it's not so this is sort of one of those metaphors but you can make sense of it it's like the water versus electricity metaphor it doesn't actually work but it's a good way to explain transfer of energy in water is the exact same yeah yeah so in in this sense imagine you have a toaster right you put your hydrogen cocktail so your deuterium and tritium inside it's called ohmic heating or resistive heating it's just that that starts to get your plasma going but at that point it's not enough to get the heating Mm. so then imagine you get this toaster with your hydrogen in it, your toast in it, and you put it inside a fucking really powerful microwave. You then microwave... It's like a turducken with a, a toaster inside a microwave, which has a super hot hydrogen into it now. Yeah, that is effectively how they get... Not how, but the simple metaphor of how they get it to that temperature. Simple sense, they call it neutral beam um, emitting is what they do, is the, um, is the initial part where they get like non-charged high energy particles and they mm. fire it into the reactor which i i don't know how those things work like yeah that, i mean it's probably quite a closely guarded secret too because i guess for the random pleb like you and me we shouldn't know how to do this because this is very, very much yeah. yeah i mean even the the magnets they're using are superconducted these are things that we have not had well working well for a long time the fact that we have them now pretty cool yeah very cool man like uh, and what i find even more fascinating is the second bit of that so the first one's neutral beam and then you got the ion cyclotron and the electron cyclotron stuff and that's actually the microwave so mm. when you're putting different radio frequencies through it um you yeah. know how in simple terms how a cyclotron sort of works it's a yeah it's um it's an incredibly strong magnetic field and the idea behind it is you fire a high-speed projectile through it, and as it passes through the magnetic field, it experiences a force towards the center of this because it's a, it's a it's a round thing. Like the um, oh, what's the one in uh, Switzerland that uh, goes under between Switzerland, France? Ah, oh, the super collider, the he- uh, hydron super collider, isn't it? Oh uh, uh, yeah, I forgot the name of it. But the super super hypercollider. That, that's a, effectively another cyclotron or magnetotron, but it creates this big circle with strong magnetic field. You fire it through it and accelerates through. And accelerates, yeah. accelerates, accelerates, and all of a sudden you can get it fire out and shoots out super high speed, close to the speed of light. Yeah. Yeah. Look, 
I think we've touched on a lot of the technology. Yeah. Your predictions last week were for this year. Should we finish up with a few predictions we have on nuclear fusion as a whole? Or should we go into what UNSW, who we got I, it from, predicted? Yes, yeah, so I think definitely in the, the latter. We, we reached out because it, when we were doing the research, we found out that at our previous university, our, uh, the uh, University of our Alumni, um, that UNSW was developing or having built a tokamak device. And so on a whim, I kind of reached out to the project manager, Dr. Uh, Patrick Burr, and I just asked, okay, he gets a few quotes, read out verbatim. Uh, yeah, he gave you us- You guys are the ones working on it. You tell us- Yeah, like- Hands-on experience, what, what is going on? Yeah, and like I looked through some of the articles and his, his commentary on it's not a generator, it's an amplifier and things like, like that. that. I yeah. like that line as well. And I just uh, I wanted a few quotes. He gave us actually- quite large commentary which i'm not going to read out verbatim just because they're, they're really detailed but what we'll do is we'll read you a summary that james has provided yeah. for so i went i went through this and i wrote like a very simple summary and you can touch on them and the first one like talking about the function of the project and what i really liked about this that touched with me is the bottleneck in fusion development is not enough people are committed to it so mm. part of their project is aiming for students to focus on the design and build of it and secondary to that is allow the technology that requires destructive testing. So by doing experimental testing, mm. we can get closer and closer to being able to do actual destructive testing because once you're doing the high level stuff, the very intense stuff, yeah. if you fuck up, it's, it's bad, right? Billions You've wasted a lot of money. It's about developing that community of scientists who have had experience in working on nuclear fusion, which would um, hopefully spark the next generation of designers and engineers and scientists and research to really get through it. And we kind of he definitely mentioned this quite a bit that the the idea of harnessing plasma at 150 million degrees with super super cooled superconductive materials which don't always work and have only worked in the last 20 30 years it's really difficult to do and to recreate on constantly it's destructive it blows not apart but it's very hard to maintain for long periods that's why we haven't done it for so long and having that experience means that we can make less mistakes in the future so it's really interesting to do um i mean i'd say the experience is one thing but inspiring passion is another thing right i think all these things we've seen they've either been built because they've had to for reasons like war or other pressures and whatnot or because people are passionate about the topic they want to see it come into fruition passion isn't enough money though it's not enough money but if yeah. you have passion you will find a way yeah. to get the money required to be able to per pursue it like yeah I don't know. Like, yeah. it's just I feel like research deserves a tenfold increase. Oh, like, shit, yeah. Imagine how much advancement we would have in all different fields based on just a little bit. Like CSIRO just went, oh, we'll play around with a bit of light data. And within 10 years, they created Wi-Fi. Yeah. Like, by accident. It wasn't part of the plan. Pretty useful Wi-Fi. Even though Australia sucks at it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we don't have great Wi-Fi, but a uh, $50 million investment, billion-dollar industry, that's what could happen. We don't know what will happen if we in increase research. Just more money towards research. Anyways, moving on. Yeah. Okay, the value for sustained fusion reactors in the future, and this actually comes back to one of the first things I said at the start of the episode was the competitive stuff. So mm. one of the things that um, Dr. Burst said was the industry is racing to build the first commercial reactor. But... Yeah. 
being a uni, yeah. they're not a commercial reactor. They're just a research sort of facility. They're not competing. So they've got the ability to do more of the, the research stuff, the things that are going to actually accelerate development mm. in the industry, which I found was kind of industry, uh, inter, industry interesting, right? Because the industry is always competing for a common goal, but the research and scientist side of it don't care about the competition. So they can focus on like, the nifty specifics and the things that are going to optimize things. Yeah, working on efficiencies that in the short term don't seem to be a huge change, but they can create a massive return of investment going forward. Yeah, totally agree. We've seen that like not just with nuclear though, like where else... Fruit flying from station in here again, man. I've got no fruit, I cleared everything. Anyways, <laughs> what, what are like other technologies that you can think of the top of your head that where you'd have industries fighting for it, but say a research database or scientists who don't care about the competition, but just want it to, to get done. Like in some respect, you say that the Manhattan Project was kind of, even though that was a war, not a competition between yeah. industry, was kind of like that, where it was one, one person- Well, the necessity split. required the technology because yeah. they thought the other side would get it first. And that was what scared them and threw money at it. I mean- I would I would point to some of the advancements that you've seen with NASA because they needed something to be built for a very specific purpose and then very shortly after, overarching benefit. Um, uh, memory foam was yeah. a material used for space flights. Now is in most beds. The yeah. idea of certain pumps that work in low gravity that done really cheap, very valuable. Medical having, devices, yeah. Having tools that work outside and not plugged in led to power tools. These benefits were not the overall goal. This was just research and development for a very specific task. And then the actual uses in, in later life were huge. Yeah. So this could be one of those where it's small improvements in a very specific field or not. Well, actually they make it very clear they're not doing specific research, but more broad research with these devices. Yeah. Um, that could break doors it's, down. It is, it is yeah, broad research, but it does focus on the specifics because like what they're, what they'll find is the th more of the, little intricate details that can go wrong, right? Things that you need to know to get the commercial stuff right. I think the IDAR mm. has like two defects um, right now, two major defects that yeah. they have to get over the line. But what I found interesting about your prediction was that in 2024, they plan to release the actual official ske schedule of like yeah. the years they've been working on this. So Because they've been working on it for, I think, just 10 years now. And they effectively want commercial, some, oh, sorry, not commercial, but like, power output by 2035 with first firing in 25 that's been delayed yeah but it will be interesting to see where they go i mean 500 megawatts if they even release that for a minute would be my prediction that's clear like my prediction's well gone at that point yeah. what i require is, is blown it out of the water yeah. yeah yeah you need it to run for like 30 seconds to hit my prediction that's what you'd need so it's it's not much it, that's my prediction is really small now, but you just need to turn what, it on. Was your prediction one, one megawatt, megawatt hour, hour? Which you actually ask the the uni, when do you believe we'll output one megawatt hour yeah. of energy? To their response was, they actually didn't don't. They said the answer was I don't know. So I'm going to put a disclaimer. This wasn't the actual prediction of UNSW, but they believe. Well, they quoted that a majority of the members in this community expect the first energy or the first megawatt hour if you want to be delivered between yeah. 2030 to 2035 it's probably the ida project yeah i would say it's 
slightly ambitious, but I do also think you have to set unrealistic schedules. Yeah, I think that's all projects. I mean, we've seen projects in Australia be blown out by six times their their initial budget. Yeah, but that's, I think there's, you're comparing poor planning of a project to ambition, right? I think Mm. be impatient to act, but be patient for the success. So like be be firm and you know, don't encourage fear, but encourage inspiration, for example. Like, yeah. there was a good quote I heard the other day and it was, the laws of physics don't care about your feelings. They only care if the rocket takes off. So, mm. if if you're, pa- again, I'm going to bring this passion thing up. I know it's not the money that buys, but if you're passionate enough, you put your feelings aside and you just fucking go for it. You just keep going mode. through it, yeah. I mean, if you understand physics enough, you understand it's just a rule book. If you understand them, <laughs> yeah. if you and you understand the rules, you can find ways not to break the rules to make them. the rules work in your favor. That's effectively what we're trying to do here. Well, I say we. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. Like... I have no fingers in this pie of nuclear fusion, but I do wish the team the absolute best. This is a very interesting topic.